Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I am, of course, Ricky Cobb, and my guest today had a very colorful 10-year Major League career. He had stops in San Francisco, St. Louis, San Diego, Hawaii in AAA, and we'll have to talk with him about that. Montreal, California, Oakland, uh, a guy who saw a lot over the course of his career and who brought serious heat with his fastball over the course of his career. John D'Aquisto, known for being one of the greatest flamethrowers of his era, a guy with a legitimate 100 mile an hour fastball, and a guy who lived uh, just about as fast off the field during the 1970s. Uh, His new book is called Fastball John, uh, written with David Jordan. And I have to tell you, I read this uh, a few weeks ago and absolutely uh, one of my favorite baseball books that I've picked up in a very long time. A book that really brings together uh, what it was like in the 1970s, both on and off the field. So there's great baseball stories in there, but there's also some really good off the field stuff. And, and Johnny D ties it together with music uh, and what really triggers our memories of yesteryear better than uh, what was on the radio at that time. So right now, let's welcome to the Super 70 Sports Hotline, the man with the 100 mile an hour heat, John D'Aquisto. John, how are you doing? I'm fine, Ricky. How are you doing, buddy? Doing great. Uh, So happy to have you on the podcast. Thanks uh, Thanks for your time. Well, thanks for having me, Ricky. I really appreciate it, and it's a pleasure to be on with you. Well, I have to tell you, the the, the book is, is Fastball, John, and uh, I just finished reading it today, and it's one of the best baseball uh, autobiographies, a, a memoir, if you will, that that, that, I, that I've ever picked up, and I've read a lot of baseball books. So, uh, first of all, my compliments to you and, and to uh, uh, David Jordan, who I know you worked with on the project. Absolutely. I'm, I'm taken aback. I said, thank you so much. You know, it's, it's like uh, uh, we really tried hard. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Uh, we we took our time with this. Uh, just between David and I alone, it took us four and a half years to write it. And uh, it took me since 1996. I had gathered everything up from my career and was writing it down on legal pads. And it took over 20 years to write completely. And... Um, you know, we wanted an honest, uh, forthright, uh, compelling memoir that people could, uh, that actually people never really heard of before. You know, I mean, there's been journeyman stories and things like that. I think one other one. And we wanted something that was uh, a story about uh, a man who happened to be a ball player, not a ball player who happened to be a man. You know, we wanted it to be about a person, and I think we we accomplished what we set out to do. 
I think you most definitely did. I, I would like to ask you, uh, speaking of the of, of the person, one of the things that uh, you know speaks so prominently throughout this book is is the music of the time and your love of music. Uh, you know, could yes. you could you tell me uh, how you uh, decided to make that a part of the narrative because it just flows uh, so well and so appropriately? I think. Well, David is also. David Jordan, uh, the co-author, is also a music buff and uh, quite good at what he does. But me, I play disc jockey on Facebook every every now and then. I'll throw up some songs, you know, my past, and and people just love those songs that I pick. And you know, it's like the music. You'd be driving. I spent a lot of time alone. Okay, being in the minor leagues, and and so music was my partner. Music was my friend. Uh, I played guitar, so I was music-oriented. And I loved the Led Zeppelin songs that came out. And Jimi Hendrix and, you know, Kansas and America, Buffalo Springfield, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And I started getting into the folk rock stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I liked it. I just liked the sound, the storytelling. Uh, and it would trigger in my head something that happened that was related to each chapter. Then every story I'd write, and I'd go, David, America. He'd go, yes. Or I'd go, Kansas. Horse with no name. You know, we would do this. Buffalo Springfield. Hello, Mr. Soul. You know, it's like Led Zeppelin. Casimir, my favorite. You know, and all of a sudden these stories would start, you'd hear the music, reading the story, you could actually feel the time. It was like being in a movie. And we go, God, what a concept. We gotta do this. And then we did the top 50 on on my Facebook page, The Countdown. And that went over extremely well and got people all excited about the book to begin with. But no one's really done a conceptual uh, piece of of combining the music of the time period, you know, with the story uh, that you're experiencing in life. And it's an important time for all of us that we all experience some kind of song that, you know, made us feel and think about our girlfriend we broke up with, you know, or the two that we found in a shopping center, <laughs> you know, that ended up being good friends, you know, and it goes on and on music is part of our lives and we don't really know it until we match it to the storyline and that's what we did yeah it, it, i think it worked uh, magnificently and you're right i mean what what brings back our memories like like music and so it's uh, uh yep, you know i think exactly. it's i think it's fair to say that this uh this book has a soundtrack and i think that's pretty cool yeah it is cool it is cool and uh I don't know. I think we're going to do a spook fee, uh, spook fee thing uh, of all the music related to the book uh, to where you can read the book and listen to spook fee at the same time. And each chapter, you know, that's connected with that era, and, you know, in the time frame. And I think it, it, it's a great idea. And David's been gracious enough to to put that into motion. So we'll see what happens here soon with that.
it's a great we're idea. We're excited about it. All right, so yeah, let's let, let's go back to, to, to you being that young, music-loving, uh, Southern California kid uh, in 1970 when you're drafted in the first round by the San Francisco Giants. Uh, I know that at that time you were you were looking at going to to USC on a scholarship. Can you uh, tell the audience a little bit about how you uh, got into pro ball and, and made that decision to sign with San Francisco and, and, and begin your journey? Sure. Uh, around I'd say twelve years of age. Actually, go way back even further than that, but around 10 years of age, I started showing signs of being a pretty good little ball player and an athlete, and uh, I kept noticing this gentleman talking to my father at the Little League games, believe it or not, and uh, later on, I come to find out it was Bob O'Regan from the New York Mets, and who wanted to follow me and and he was asking questions of my dad is Johnny wanting to be a pro baseball player my dad goes I don't know I I haven't talked to him well shortly after that I told my dad I said dad you know I really do want to be a pro baseball player and I don't know why I said it but I guess it was that time you know to let my dad know this is my indication of what I want to be and so I started working hard and I, I I got really into it. I fell in love with the game of baseball. It, it's what you have to do to, to become a major league player. You have to fall in love with it. You got to marry it. You have to marry it. You have to be dedicated. And but I was also a dedicated football player. I was an All American out of high school, and uh, that's part of my other scholarship to SC was to play football. And so I had two things going, and all of a sudden these scouts started showing up at the games and throwing three no-hitters against one one school didn't hurt one bit. <laughs> no, I don't think and so. Get, no, and getting MVP in my junior year, you know, for the uh, for, for, for the Lions tournament in San Diego and beating Terry Forrester 2-1 to one in the championship game didn't hurt either. And you know, and, and going on because he was my nemesis in high school. It was it was either Diaquisto or or Forrester would go head to head matchup. We'd have 144 uh, scouts in the stands, 150 scouts in the stands. It, it, it was unbelievable. And you see them all there with their clipboards writing away. And you know, so you knew you had a chance of of getting drafted, but you didn't know how high because we didn't have baseball prospectus. We didn't have uh, top 10 rookies. We didn't have the top 100 rookie prospects. We didn't have any of that available to us except in the sporting news. And I didn't even at the time know what the sporting news was. (laughs) So it was like, we're dealing with a phone on the wall and a newspaper and a TV. And maybe we might get a little blurb here and there on high school sports in the area, but it was mostly football related. They didn't care about baseball. So that's what we were dealing with. And and then, you know, my senior year, I ended up going 11 and, and 1 with an 0-9-1 earned run average. And I throw, I think, four no-hitters. And one of them happened to be in front of Carl Hubble, the great king. And I'm looking back in the, in the cage back there, and I see this man back there with uh, Ray-Ban dark glasses on, horn rim, and a fedora, and dressed in a suit. 
Nobody comes to a high school baseball game in San Diego dressed in a suit. <laughs> Nobody. And wearing a fedora? I, I go, wait a minute. Not looking back there, he's standing right behind home plate. So I'm warming up, and I let one go. Right before I you know, finished to throw down to second, I'd let two go really, really good. And so I let, let this one go. It went over the head of the umpire and, and, and the catcher and hit the back screen back there. And it stuck in, in into the uh, you know the chain link fence. And Mr. Hubble was sitting there trying to poke the ball out with his pipe. <laughs> and I didn't know it at the time, but I'm going, okay, what's this guy doing? You know. And so my coach went over and he says, "Here, I get it." And he banged it out. And he goes, "Excuse me." I heard, I heard him ask my coach, "Excuse me, can I get that ball? I'd like to keep it." I, I, I need it. And my coach goes, well, who are you that you need it? He goes, I'm Carl Hubble. And I heard my coach say, the Carl Hubble? He goes, the Carl Hubble. He gave him the ball. And then my dad walked over next to me. Coach brought over my dad because he obviously was watching me. And, and then uh, my dad talked to King Carl for a while and then went and sat down. And I went and finished my fourth no-hitter, three against the same team. They did not score against me all year and did not get a hit. So after the game, I'm walking out, and Carl Hubble comes up to me, and he says, hey, do me a favor. First of all, it's nice to meet you. But he goes, would you sign this ball for me right where that, the chain link fence mark is? And I go, sure. I, you're asking me to autograph a ball for you? You're, you're Carl Hubble. I should be asking you for autograph. He goes afterward. I said, okay, fine. King Carl Hubble, the greatest left-hander pitcher, John D'Aquisto, underlined my name. He goes, thank you. Now I'll sign your glove. So he signed my glove for me. That was good. That was the only glove I had, so I had to be cool with that you know back then we didn't have the the luxury of having three or four gloves but he signed my glove for me and so we had some pleasantries and that was it and we'll go home well june draft comes up it's like june 2nd i think june 2nd or 7th somewhere around there and i'm sitting with a scout from the atlanta braves at dr h paul bauer's office getting a physical because they're thinking about drafting me in the first round and so I'm with them in the office and the phone rings and the receptionist says uh, John it's your mom come here so I walk over to my mom talk to my mom and uh, she goes uh, you got what you wanted I said and what is that she goes, you got drafted by the San Francisco Giants, first round. I said, really? I guess I better leave the office now, huh? She goes, I think you should. So I hang up the phone. I tell the scout, I'm out of here. I got drafted in the first round by the, by the Giants. He goes, damn, we were just after you guys. They were going to pick hmm. me up, but too late. The Giants, Giants picked me up. So I go home, and as soon as I get home, not more than a half hour later, here comes George Genovese and Joe Henderson. 
and they came to the front door and they wanted to start talking contract right now so that was another story in itself and that's how I, I got drafted I got drafted that way and you know there, there are no cell phones and you know and, and iPads or iPods or whatever you want to call it you know and I'm pretty tech savvy and you know it was a phone and you're lucky if the phone if the phone was being used at the time and someone else was calling in it, you just got a busy signal right yeah okay you remember so it was like yes, if they couldn't get to you you know and and so i was actually fortunate enough to to have been at dr bauer's office and getting a clean bill of health you know then you know to you know be able not to miss this news and you know my mom knew where i was so from that point on um we negotiated contract and it, and it got my mother was my agent and she was tough. I think she was actually tougher than than Scott Burroughs, uh, you know, <laughs> when you come down to it, uh, or Jerry Capstein at the at, at the time, you know, uh, two of the best agents in baseball. But you know, you'd look at how she handled the situation. She was like trying to buy a brand new car, or trying to sell a brand new car to the team, you know. And it was like she had it going on. No, 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 no. We're not going to take that. No, 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 no. We want college, and we want money. He's your first-round draft pick, and you're going to pay him what you paid Garibaldi. And I go, where the hell did she get that information? <laughs> you know? Mom was not stupid. Mom was good. very sharp and a very tough business lady. She looked it up someplace. I don't know. She had it going on. And we weren't in a look-up society. She had to have gone to the library and read about it. So she knew Garibaldi was the number one pick. How? I don't know. But she did. And so from that point on, the negotiations started flying. And, man, I, she sent me off to Hawaii. And when, when I was over there for two weeks, they were still talking with my mom. I'd call my mom on the phone. What's going on? What's happening? You know, and she would tell me. And I said, no, it's not enough. And then I came back and played in the North-South All-Star game. And I hadn't pitched. I was having fun. I was surfing in Hawaii and scuba diving. And, you know, I, I didn't touch a baseball for two weeks, so I got a little rusty. And I was in the North-South All-Star game. I didn't do very well. And USC was there, uh, along with George Genovese and Joe Henderson. And uh, they came up to me. Uh, SC said, well, you can play football. But you only got a two-year scholarship, so you're going to have to play football, and you're going to have to walk on. Get this. Walk on to play baseball. First-round draft pick. And I said, yeah, first-round draft pick, right? And I said, really? Okay. And George was there, and he's looking at me. I go, so, George, how much did you get me? He goes, I got you what you wanted. I said, good. You got a pen? Sign it right here. Boom, signed the contract, off I went. That was it. Rod Data was standing right there with his jaw open. Like, <laughs> well, I thought you'd go play for John McKay. Nope. I'm going to go play for the San Francisco Giants. And that's the way it is. Boom, gone. That was it. Walk and I on? With, uh, Rick, yeah, walk on. You, can you believe it? Oh, yeah. Well, you can come and play, but we can't give you a scholarship. Or you can go to a JC and and you can play there for two years until we see what you can do. 
Or I can, or I can sign yeah, with the San Francisco Giants. Yeah, or I can sign with the San Francisco Giants and get two hundred fifty thousand cash. Back in the seventies. I think you made the yeah, right decision. Yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, you, you, I t- did. you tell a great story. Uh, I think it was your first uh, spring training. Uh, you know, before you uh, before you ever uh, appeared in a regular season uh, game, I think you were still probably a year or two away from that happening. But you were facing the Cubs, and you got some uh, interesting advice from Willie McCovey uh, that day. And it's yes, I and, did. and it's uh, one of my favorite stories in the book. Could you could you kind of take what? me take me back to that day? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's one of my favorite stories, by the way, too. I was 19 years old, and Charlie Fox was the manager. This is 1971, and opening day at Scottsdale Stadium, the Cubbies and Giants are going to go head to head. The first squad is on the field, including the great one Willie Mays in center, uh, Willie McCovey at first, uh, Fuentes at second. Uh, Spire at short, Al Gallagher at third, Dick Dietz catching, and uh, Kenny Henderson at left, uh, Bobby Bonds in right, and there was your San Francisco Giant Ball Club who just won the Western Division Championship the year before. Okay, before you go any further, what what is in the mind of a, of a teenage kid? I mean, obviously a cocky, talented kid who succeeded everywhere he's been, but what what's in your mind as you look around and you see these future Hall of Famers behind you and these uh, you know these other star uh, caliber players? Well, first of all, I'm shaking like a nervous Nelly out there. You know, it's like uh, my legs are shaking so bad you could have put cymbals between them, and they could have played the national anthem. I would have banged <laughs> the cymbals perfectly for them on time too, and. Uh, it was like I was so nervous, and I'm looking back out there, and I see number 24, and I'm going, oh, my God, the great one's out there. Oh, man, you know. All right, let's just try to do the best. So I get on, on the mound to start, and he's screaming at me. He's going, hey, 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 stop. Don't don't throw yet. I'm not ready. And I'm going, well, okay. I turn around and look out there. He's kind of swandering back out, getting in position, gets himself set, turns around, gives me a little nod of the cap. Go get him, kid. Step back on the mound. I go ball one, ball two, ball three, ball four. I'm not even close. And Becker is leading off. Becker goes first. Right out of the get-go, he steals on the first pitch. He's down a second. And, and Muley... You know, Dick Deeds, he throws the ball in the center field. He wasn't even ready. You know, here here, come, here comes Becker. He's over on third. The dugout's laughing, like hysterically, like it's some joke. And I'm sitting there. I'm getting a little red, red and tipped in the ears. I'm getting a little mad. And uh, so I'm sitting there, and I, I'm catching out of the corner of my eye. Becker takes off running and comes back. He's jockeying me, trying to make me flinch make you know make a mistake sure. and balk well he takes off running and i went to go step off and my cleats got stuck and i flinch and they call balk he scores they're now they're now rolling in the dugout over there calling me everything from you know 
Hey, punk, you know, you have, you having any trouble? You're having trouble out there? What's the matter? Can't you throw the ball over the plate? I mean, just jawing on me big time. And here comes Big Mac. And here comes Dick Dietz. And I go, uh-oh, I got the two guys coming to talk to me. And Mac comes up, puts his hand on my shoulder, and he goes, you know what you got to do, don't you? And I said, uh... Yeah, as a matter of fact, I do know what I have to do. And I can't say it on radio, but, you know, he told me to hit hit that MF as hard as you can. And I said, and that was an expletive, and I looked at him and I said, seriously, I was planning on doing that. He goes, okay, let's see what you can do. He walked, walked away, and Deeds goes, Let's don't waste any time with this. Let's just nail him on the first pitch. I said, okay, fine, good. So, by the way, I struck out Kessinger, the second hitter. Ron Sano comes up to the plate, and he digs it, and he's digging in to boot. He's starting to dig in, and I'm going, okay, this is going to be fun. So he starts getting deep and setting himself up and I take a wind up and I fired I hit him right in the rib cage so hard he went down like a sack of bricks and he's on the ground squirming and oh moaning and all of a sudden that dugout that was jawing on me and laughing at me was sitting over there dead quiet and I looked over at him and I said oh yeah I bet that hurt <laughs> because it was only probably 99 miles an hour right I mean oh it was definitely up in the maybe even triple figures I let it go I mean I just drilled him and and I threw a real heavy ball like a brick and so I get out of the inning you know and we go back into the dugout and this is the best part because all the guys are coming in I'm getting patted on the head you know and getting all the you know pats on the back and on the butt you know and and BB comes in and Bobby Bonds comes in and he goes hey there you go Welcome, welcome to the big leagues. Yeah, that was good. And then Mays came in and he tapped me on the head. He goes, good job, kid. Way to go. And then McCovey came over. He goes, I guess you really did know what to do. I go, yep, I did. And he goes, well, that's good. You just hang with me, kid. We'll be all right. And Muley came up to me, Dick Deeds, and get, patted me on the shoulder. And he goes, Ah, you'll be okay. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. And it was, I felt like a, a little kid, a little kid that just went out and stole his first car and brought it back to the gang, and the gang was okay with it. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, so so, uh, so that's got to be an incredible experience. But, I mean, you were still at that point, uh, you know, far from seasoned, and, and you worked your way up the chain over the course of the uh, of the next three years and as i'm looking at your minor league statistics i you you, you've pitched over 650 innings uh from 1971 through 1973 you struck out over a batter an inning you you walked over 100 batters each one of those uh years as well you were throwing a lot of pitches and and in fact you had 40 you had 45 complete games in the minor leagues uh, at the time that yeah, you were called up, uh, by the age of 21, yeah. uh, which is about 45 yeah. more than anybody has in the minor leagues uh, now when they make their uh, major league debut. And, and you mentioned in the book 
that uh, you know it wasn't really a big deal for you to throw 150 pitches uh, as a 20 or 21 year old kid. Um, and I know the game has changed uh, so much, and, and you know we can argue about whether or not it's. Uh, for the better in in every respect, but uh, what was it like in those days? Uh, you know, being a nineteen twenty year old kid, because today, you know, forty five years down the line, that's that's pretty much considered malpractice. Oh, it actually is, Ricky. It it it, it was malpractice. I threw over fifteen thousand pitches recorded, and and you know, you think about, it, I struck out over nine hundred guys. In my minor league, 900 guys, 244, 245, 187, 167 in, in, in my next year. Plus, you know, not, I had four years of over 400 strikeouts, you know, and that curtailed part of that was from uh, from the uh, Great Falls into Decatur, which was 244, 245, and then Fresno was 244, 45. Mm-hmm. And then in, into, in, into Phoenix, I think I, I had 187. I led the league in strikeouts all the way through. Uh, there was only one other pitcher that had done that consecutively in, in his career, and that was uh, Mike Moore Ooh. for the Giants now. And we were the only two guys that have ever done that. He failed to do it. I did complete the third year. So I was the only one to do it. And, you know, you look at that and you say, did it hurt you? Did, did you feel any different? I said, no, Bob, because I'll tell you what, I threw a 14-inning game, and the next week I came back and threw a 15-inning game. And they, my manager just came up to me, and I had Frank Funk was my manager in Decatur and in Fresno, and Jimmy Davenport was my manager in, in Phoenix. All they did was they handed me a baseball, and they said, it's all you, kid. Have fun. And I won 11 games in in uh, Decatur. They found one they they forgot to put in. It's, the show's 10 and 13. It's really 11 and 13. But the next year I was 17 and six, and the next year after that in Phoenix and AAA ball I was 16 and 12, and all complete games. I mean, I, there were very seldom I did not go nine. And yeah, it, it is total malpractice now. But in '75 it did catch up to me. It did catch up to me. Now, I want to uh, talk about your tremendous uh, 74 uh, rookie campaign because you, you carried uh, the uh, durability and effectiveness that you had shown uh, through uh, uh, Decatur and Fresno and Phoenix uh, with you to, to Candlestick. And in, in 74, you were, you were named the uh, uh, National League Rookie uh, Pitcher of the Year by the Sporting News. And um, in, in 1974, uh, what I would have to tell you is my favorite story uh, from the book, and I know that you know where I'm going, is the uh, cu- couple of very uh, memorable duels that you had with uh, a Hall of Fame pitcher, uh, known for intimidating the, the, the hell out of everybody. Uh, uh, but, but, you, but you went toe-to-toe with him uh, a couple of times and, and toe-to-toe with him off the field uh, as well. So uh, I know that this is something that, uh, you know, to, to give my audience an idea of the kind of stories that are in this book and how entertaining it is, uh, I, have to oh, yeah. get, I have to get you 
to uh, talk a little bit about your run-ins with uh, one Mr. Bob Gibson in 1974. Exactly. Uh, Gibby, great pitcher, man. I mean, he was just a fabulous pitcher, tough competitor. He would knock his own mother down. You heard stories about it? They were all true. They were all true. (laughs) His mom better not be wearing the opposite opposition's uniform. I'll tell you that right now. I go into to a game with Gibby, and I believe we were in St. Louis. I give up four runs uh, in the first, and Gibby gives up five. I threw a curveball to Gibby. Gibby came up to plate net, and... Uh, I knocked him down. I, I knew I was I was screwed right there. Okay? I, I knew it right there. He, he couldn't tell if it was a curveball or a fastball. He couldn't tell. All he knew is he was on the ground. And, and that was it. It started with that. I come up to hit. And I saw a ball at my head. It looked like the size of a beach ball it was that close and I just dropped my body I kicked my legs out from underneath me and dropped to the ground and he was going to hit me in the head and try to kill me and I get up and I look out at him and he's just staring at me and I get up I dust myself off I get back in he throws me a fastball, and I hit it right up the freaking middle, right past his ear. Oh, now he's really, really mad, really mad. Get on first, innings over. From that point on, after me, we retired 19 guys in a row, and it was like, you get hit, I get hit. You get hit, I get hit. You know, it's like, God, I'm only glad I'm only coming up three times against this guy. He's beginning to hurt me, okay? <laughs> and, and I would just, you know, it was like I was on my back half the time, every, every other pitch. You know, it was like, okay, you made your point, you know? And we just kept going. Well, I ended up winning the game 5-4. to four. So after the game, there's a back elevator at Bush Stadium that you get on. And... Most of the superstars like Gibby and, say, other superstars and guys that knew the back elevator entrance like that we had on our team, like Bonzi and all, all the guys, they would go out there and wait, and then we'd go out to go get a bite to afterwards. So I get on the elevator. Who am I on the elevator with? Gibson. Bob Gibson, standing in the corner. I walk on. I'm standing in the other corner. So what's a young kid, 21, going to say to a guy after a good game? I said, nice game, Bob. He proceeded to say, go screw yourself, but not in that kind of a nice way. <laughs> yes. And I said back at him the same thing, and it was F-U, 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 back and forth, back and forth. And then it, we got closer to each other face-to-face, and then it was pushing and shoving, and then I grabbed him, he grabbed me, and he tried to take a swing at me, I took a swing at him, and all of a sudden we're on the floor. And the doors open, and we fall out the elevator, and the doors are hitting us. You know, like they're trying to close, but we're there, okay? 
guys are there waiting for me to go out to go to dinner, and I'm on the floor fighting with Bob Gibson. <laughs> so Moffat jumps on, and he pulls me off, and he goes, come on, kid. And Gibby goes, I'll see you next week. I said, no, you will see me next week. I guarantee it. And you better be there. So we go to Candlestick for the next one. And sure enough, Gibby and I locked horns again. He beat me this game. Only he beat me two to one. Nine innings. Same thing. Knocked down. Knocked down. Hit. Knocked down. Oh, man. Both. Back and forth. And it was just the two of us. Nobody else got involved with this. He didn't throw at anybody else. He just wanted me. He wanted me. And later on, when I went to Atlanta, guess who was my pitching coach? Bob Gibson for Joe Torrey. First words out of his mouth. So, do you remember the games we had in 74? I go, what games? Those weren't games. That was you. That was ultimate fighting, man. Come on. <laughs> Gibby Gibby just laughed at me. He goes, you still got your slider? I go, yeah, I still got my slider. Let me see it. Oh, that's a pretty good slider. And then he showed me how to throw his slider. That was even a better slider. And he he told me after, they, they ended up signing me, Joe signed me, and he told me afterwards, he says, you know, you're the only one that really stood up against me that didn't didn't budge. And he says, and I respect you for that. Yeah, I, I mean, that made me feel I, that made me feel good. I gotta tell yeah. you, John. I mean, for a for a, a 21, 22 year old kid, it, it took some it took some stones to to dust Bob Gibson. Oh yeah, a lot of stones <laughs> repeatedly. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, are you crazy? You know, and it was it was purely accidental. But Gibby didn't think that at first. You know, he he'd never seen me before. All he knew is he was on his back, and all I knew was, was I was going to be on mine. Okay, <laughs> and 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 I mean we, you know, he, that was his last year too. He finished his last year was seventy four. He was done, and and mine was beginning. His was ending. So there's a, a little bit of a, a quasi reality there, you know, about in, in with the new and out with the old. But I'll tell you what. What a competitor! What a pitcher! Even at his age, man could throw baseball. Yeah, I mean, could the, really throw. And now, at the last, yeah, the 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 story can be told because it's always always associated Ali yeah. Ali Frazier with the seventies, but now it's Gibson Diaquisto right. also. Uh, that, yeah, I wanted to ask you about I wanted to ask you about Bobby Bonds um, and, and what he yeah. meant to the Giants because Bobby figures. Uh, pretty prominently uh, in the book, particularly the, those early days yes. in San Francisco, and and uh, the role that he that he had uh, as a, as really a leader uh, of the team. What what did Bobby mean to to that ball club, particularly after Will, Willie Mays uh, was gone, and, and what did he mean to you personally as a young player? Well, you know, when when Mays left the team and and went to the Mets. Uh, uh, Bobby kind of took over that position because Willie handed it down to Bobby, and you know because they were very very close, and and uh, you know and Willie was uh, Willie was not was Willie is Godfather to Barry Bonds, and um, you know so there was a tight family family happening there, and so Bobby took over and and uh, he he really had the mainstay, but he also you know got got into the political uh, uh, 
agenda of what was going on with the ball club. And if you remember at that time, we were going through, uh, oh, you're going to St. Petersburg, or you're going to Toronto, or you're going, uh, we don't know where you're going. Oh, there's a new ball club being built up on the moon. You know, you could be going there. You know, it's like we didn't have a clue where we were going. But he kind of kept us together and kept us, you know, focused on what we needed to do and, and what's a mainstay. For me, uh, being a rookie, Bobby kind of took a liking to me because I, I took a liking to his kids, and and especially Barry. Barry and I hung hung with each other in right field, shagging fly balls a lot, and, and uh, so I had the older BB and the little BB, and I used to kick the little BB in the butt and and tell him, "Go play with your dad." He goes, "I don't want to go play with my dad. I want to play with you." I said, "Okay, fine. Stick around. All right, go shag that fly ball." And, and we talk about how to take off get a good jump on a ball, show him how to do things and how to throw a ball and all that. And, you know, I saw him recently here in uh, Phoenix, and I went up to him and I said, hey, you remember sitting out in right field in Candlestick Park shagging fly balls? He goes, how do you expect me to remember? And I said, oh, oh, here it comes. I'm going to get leveled. And I said, you should remember it. I'm John DiAquisto. He goes, oh, my God, my God, oh, my God. He came over and hugged me. How many times have you seen Barry Bonds hug anybody? <laughs> I don't think ever. Never. Yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't get one. I got three. And then I got one later. That was four. And we talked about family and how he's doing. Kid's a great kid. You know, I, I think he's one of the mis most misunderstood players. But there's a lot of influence there from uh, from uh, Godfather and Dad, you know, uh, about how to handle things and, you know, keep the press away from you and things like that. Right. And I think that had a lot of influence there. Bobby, Bobby was the same way with that, but yet he was a little more personal because of the fact he had that captain's role on his back. And, and you know, he, he liked me. And he wanted to make, make sure that anything that I did when I was on that mound, that he did everything he could to catch a ball for me or hit a home run or hit an extra base hit or do something timely, was that was Bobby Bond. Willie McCovey, really, when we lost Willie McCovey, both Willies, we lost both Willies. We call it WMWM, Willie Mays and Willie McCovey. Mac was really the, he was the, the judge of our kangaroo court. He was our real team leader. He was our strength, uh, more so than Willie Mays was. Willie was a superstar rent-a-car. I mean, he was he was it. But Mac kept us all together, and 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 so did Bobby. And then when both of them left, it was like, okay, someone's got to step up to the plate here and take over because we're all a bunch of kids. We don't know anything, so we need a veteran player to step up for us. And, and Bobby took that role. And that meant a lot to a lot of the guys. But then Bobby had his problems, too. So that didn't mean too much to the guys. You know, but we just kind of ignored it, and that was the way things were back then. One of the you things know? that struck me, speaking of the way that things were back then, is, you know, Bobby's just smoking in the dugout uh, during during yep. during games. And, I mean, I realize this is a this is a different time. But, I mean, how common was that? at the time for guys to be doing these things that uh you know would today obviously be seen as as counterproductive to their health and best performance and all of that well 
smoking was part of the game, but then it got to be a little too rampant. So baseball came down and said, enough of that. No smoking in the dugout because of a thing called television came in heavy. If you remember in 77, 78, uh, TV became Monday Night Baseball, ABC, Monday Night Baseball with Howard Cosell, you know, and, you know, <laughs> it changed everything. There were people watching all over the United States for the Monday Night Baseball game and Saturday Night Baseball. And, you know, things just changed. And so you had to be self-conscious. Guys were cupping their hands and smoking cigarettes and blowing it down their jerseys. You know, it was like, you know, uh, they would go in the runway and smoke down in the runway. You'd see the smoke come out the top of the dugout. You knew what the heck was going on, you know. But, you know, baseball said anyone caught smoking on TV is going to be a $2,500 fine. Second offense is 5000 Back then, that's a lot of money. No, my goodness. That, that so, is. So... So that kind of changed things, and then everything, you know, like I didn't smoke when I was uh, I was a kid, you know, and I smoked later on a little bit, but you know, I just I just I stopped it completely, and uh, you know, when the the chewing tobacco craze came out, you know, the snuff, and you know, and then I stopped doing that because I got hit in the mouth, uh, and that kind of ruined ruined that for me, and uh, I stopped doing that, and. So, you know, I I just uh, I, I was a cigar smoker. I like to smoke cigars. That was yeah. it, and not often, just once in a while. So l- let's talk about one of the those things that uh, uh, that you very uh, uh, astutely mention in, in your book. Uh, again, coming from the perspective of you're a you're a man playing baseball. Um, and you have a life and a family and uh, and obviously considerations off the field that we as fans oftentimes don't don't think about when we're we're watching you on the field as a baseball player and it, it's sort of like when you have a teacher when you're a kid you just think that they spend the rest of their life in a closet somewhere I remember seeing a teacher yeah. out at the grocery <laughs> store or whatever and it's just like oh my goodness you know there was Mr. Smith or whatever he has a life well yeah. well you guys yeah. obviously baseball's just part of what you do that's what we know you as we know you as is John Diaquisto the the flame throwing pitcher but uh, obviously that that's only a piece of the puzzle and and so, in in, right. in in 1977, you're traded, um, and and not only are you not only are you are, are you traded, but you, you you wind up relocating twice in in short order because you get dealt to St. Louis, where I think it would be fair to say that that was basically a pit stop uh, on the way to yep. San Diego. So. Uh, could, could, could you kind of go into that sequence of events and sure. uh, and, and what it's like? Uh, you know, obviously, many of us and I and I talk, I've talked about this with various ball players. Your your average passionate uh, fan of the game, such as myself, I, I you know I would love to have been able to have had the talent to to be a player and to have uh, uh, done something like baseball for a living. But one of the things that we don't think about so much is uh, in the line of work that I'm in. People can't just arbitrarily uh, ship me across the country on a whim. So, uh, so, so what's that like? Uh, having to deal with that aspect well, of the reality of being a pro athlete. Well, you know, when you're not doing really well, you're always looking over your shoulder because of the fact that you could get traded at any time or released, which means get fired. 
and uh, or get sent down to AAA or AA even. And so when I got to St. Louis, you know, they pretty much had a pretty stocked up pitching staff. And when I got there, it was like, okay, someone got hurt or Bob Forge couldn't pitch. So I was a filler, a swing man, a sixth, sixth guy on the rotation. So they would put me in games or I'd throw relief. And I didn't really have a lot of appearances, but I did get into it because I was the assistant player rep with Lou Brock. And Lou Brock and I, you know, were trying to keep peace in the family with with Vern Rapp and, and the guys when you got the mad Hungarian with the Fu Manchu mustache that hits the floor and, and Vern is telling him to shave it, cut his hair and shave it. Now that didn't go over real well. And and also telling Ted Simmons, who's the size of a uh, of a Kenworth uh, truck, you know, to uh, cut his hair. That didn't go over very well. So we had a lot of uh, animosity going on towards the manager. Well, they go to showcase me against uh, the, the uh, uh, Cincinnati Reds, the big red machine in St. Louis, and I see Bob Fontaine, who's the GM of the Padres in the stands, and I'm going, hmm, that's interesting. Why is Bob Fontaine here? Hmm. I don't know. Well, can't think of that now. I'll pitch the game. So I go inning one, inning two, inning three, inning four. I'm throwing a no-hitter. Well, that's not going to look too good if you're showcasing a pitcher that you're going to trade, and he's throwing a no-hitter going into the fifth. I get into four, four and two-thirds innings, and uh, O'Vern comes out to the mound in the fourth, and he says, uh, i I, I got to take you out. i got the whole team on the mound. And, and the umpire. The umpire goes, hey, Vern, he's throwing a no-hitter. Did you know that? He goes, you need to mind your own business. He goes, oh, okay. And the rest of the guys are saying, come on, Vern. And I looked at Vern and said, Vern, get off my mound, please. Go back to the dugout where you belong. Let me finish this. So he turns around and walks away. I come out the next inning. The same thing. Comes out again. This time, I'm sitting there. He comes up, he grabs the ball out of my hand. He says, that's it for you, you're done. I had a no-hitter going. Takes me out, I go back in the dugout, throw my glove down on the ground. Claude Osteen comes over to me and he goes, uh, I had nothing to do with this. I said, oh, well, that's that sounds like a, a cop-out. And I took my glove and I walked up to my locker, proceeded to get a bucket of Budweiser because we played for Budweiser you know, the king of beers. And I started sipping them down, and I waited for the press to come in because I knew they were coming. So they came, they rushed me literally after. We, we ended up throwing a one-hitter. Uh, it was a one-hit one hit com, uh, combined. Buddy Schultz gave up a 3-1 high fastball to Ken Griffey, and he, he got a triple, and they got a, they got a fly, sacrifice fly. Griffey scored. We beat him 10 to 1 on one hit, and it was Buddy Schultz went four, and I I went four and two thirds. Buddy Schultz went four, and the Mad Hungarian went one, one third, and and that was it. and we threw nine inning, uh, complete game, freaking uh, uh, almost a no hitter. Well, got rushed. They were asking me, well, 
what do you think's going on? Why do you take you out? Uh, you you should have left you in. I said, look, it's obvious that uh, Vern Rapp and the Cardinal organization is showcasing me to another organization. So why don't we just leave it at that? And why don't you go ask Vern because he's a manager or go ask Big Divine. Yeah, I'm sure he'll tell you what's going on. So I left it at that. They turned around and walked away. Well, I go down into Houston. I throw in relief there. Guess who's in the stands again? Bob Fontaine. I throw, you know, three or four innings down there. And so I'm sitting there going, okay, fine, game over. I go back to my room. I'm, I'm just, you know, hanging out with my girlfriend. And all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. This is about 1230 at night. Or in the morning, I should say. 12.30 in the morning. I hang it out. I look in the peephole. It's Claude Osteen. I open up the door. Claude, what do you want? He goes, can I come in? He had two glasses and a bottle of wine. And he comes in. He goes, oh, you got company. I'm sorry. Ah, come on in. Come on. I sat down. He poured it. And he goes, look, I just wanted to tell you I had nothing to do with this. I wanted to keep you here because you started throwing good. And, and I said, what's going on? Am I getting traded? He goes, yeah, you're getting traded, but I can't tell you where. You'll find out. So he goes, you need to get dressed, put on a suit, and go up and meet with these guys. I said, a suit? I said, oh, okay. So I threw on my pants, a sport coat, shirt, tie. This is at 1 o'clock in the morning. Knock on the door. All of a sudden, there was Bing Devine, Vern Rapp, and Sullivan, our traveling secretary, sitting there. And they all point at the phone, it's off the hook, on the credenza, on the back side. And I go, phone? For me? Yeah. I pick up the phone, it's Buzzy Bavese. And I go, Buzzy. What are you calling me for? I finally got you. I go, you find me? Am I coming home? He goes, yeah, you're coming home. But first, you got to go to Montreal and pick up the team in Montreal. And I go, okay. So they asked me to sit down and and, I, and I'm right in front of Vern Rapp. And you know me, I, like in the book, I hold no punches back. I tell it like it is. And I look at Vern, I look at Bing Divine. I said, Mr. Divine, you've been a gracious host to me and have me on this club, but you got a problem here with this man here, Mr. Rapp. He's creating a lot of dissension on the club. You got a fabulous ball club. And I'll tell you what, it's going right in the toilet because of him. Well, he only lasted a year. They fired him the next year because Big Divine kind of agreed with me. Well, I get traded. Off to San Diego I go. I've got no white shoes. I've got no brown sleeves. I've got nothing. And they're on the road. And I, guys are giving me piecemeals, hand-me-downs, whatever I can wear. I'm wearing Doug Raider's shoes. they got holes in the bottom of them, you know, from playing a pair of Paris pair. Uh, spare shoes and I'm sitting sitting there on the bench with Raleigh Fingers and Randy Jones Cy Young Cy Young MVPs right mm -hmm. and I'm going hi guys how the heck are you and they go 
nice to see you. And then Randy spits a chewing tobacco wand right in my ear. He goes, welcome to the club. I go, oh, nice talking to you, too. You know, and so, so, I mean, I knew right then and there it was good to see my friends. But, you know, it's like, and Randy and I, we, we go back to when we first broke in. The first couple of games I pitched were against him, you know? And so... You're not getting the red carpet was, treatment, is what you're telling me. Uh, no, no, I'm kind of getting the, I'm kind of getting the rookie treatment, you know, of a, you know, five-year veteran, you know, okay, here we go. So, you know, it's like, okay, so, uh, we, we, we're watching the game, right? Everything's going on. Roger Craig was the pitching coach. Johnny McNamara was the manager. And Roger comes up to you and says, Johnny, you're pitching tomorrow. I forgot to tell you, you need to go back to the hotel and get your rest. I said, okay, fine. So I go shower up, pack up, head back to La Cité Hotel in Montreal. Get back there, go to the, go to the bar for, have a beer. And I look at the TV. They got the game on the TV, CKAC. Remember CKAC? CKAC Television. C-K-A-C. Radio and TV. Canada. I'm watching the game. It's in the eighth inning now. It's all tied up, one-to-one. And it, uh, I get a bite to eat, get a nice roast beef sandwich, a little beer, go back up to my room, turn the game on. It's in the tenth. Tied up, still, one-to-one. Uh, I fall asleep. I leave the TV on. I look at, again, it's in the sixteenth. I go, hmm, interesting. We got a day game tomorrow. Keep looking, watching the game. It's in the 20th inning. It's in the 22nd inning. It goes 23. And I go, I'm screwed. I'm really screwed. This is going to be one of those, take one for the team tomorrow. So I, I go, okay, fine. So I get my rest anyway it was 145 in the morning quarter to two before the game finished and i get get up the next morning shower get ready go get it get on the bus there's nobody on the bus nobody and i'm going no managers no coaches nobody and i'm the only one me and the bus driver Bus driver says, "Oh, you, the, you, you, John." I said, "Yeah." He says, I, "That's all. I'm supposed to wait for you, and uh, we're to go to the park." I said, "Okay, fine. Off we go to the park." I get to the park. They're all sleeping on the floor. They spent the night <laughs> because they thought it would be smarter to spend the night and eat pizza and drink beer than to come back to the hotel and sleep in the bed. Wrongo. <laughs> okay, so. So, sure enough, here comes Roger with the ball, puts it in my hand, and he goes, it's all you today. I said, is there anyone going to be playing behind me and in front of me? And he goes, yeah, good luck. Have a good game. Well, yeah, it was one of those games where the first pitch I threw to Gene Tennis went right past his glove, right past his ear, and almost hit the umpire. Because that fire was on the right side, and he was on the left side, and went right back to the backstop. And Gene never even moved his glove. And I go, great. Next pitch was between Gene's leg and went right back 
to the backstop. And the other one was over Umpire's head and Gene and went to the backstop. So it's 3-0, and and I'm going, this is not going to be a good day. And I finally settled in. I gave up three runs in the first, so which wasn't too bad. But uh, I still gave up three runs, and I think two of them were unearned. And uh, uh, <laughs> come back out. Uh, I'm telling you, I walk out, and Gene goes, I'm sorry, man. I'm just, uh, you know, it, it, it's just rough. It, it was rough <laughs> last night. I said, okay, fine. I can understand that, but, you know, come on. we got to get going. Go get a couple cu- cups of coffee in you or something. You know, I don't know. Just go do something, you know, and come back out. Well, I ended up losing the game three to one. All right, and I come back, come back to San Diego. But I pitched good. I, I really pitched good. I, I went went into about the eighth inning, and uh, so I pitched really well. And they were happy that I did did that well. And so I was being used. And then Johnny McNamara gets fired, you know. And uh, uh, then Bob Skinner took over. And then for a short period of time, and I still did okay. And then uh, Alvin Dark took over, and I, I got sat. I was sat. And then they put me back in again. And I ended up pulling my uh, cartilage in my ribcage. And Randy Jones came up to me, and he says, uh, I know you're hurt, and I know they should put you on the disabled list, but they want you to go to Hawaii to kind of uh, do a rehab assignment there. And you know, get your stuff together and start getting in a regular rotation and feel of it. And so they sent me down to Hawaii. And uh, from that point on, I did pretty good in Hawaii. And I came back up uh, to the big leagues at the end of the season and uh, finished off okay. And then I had to play uh, play uh, winter ball in uh, Tijuana, and that's a whole other story. All right, now, I, now before we talk about 78, because 78 was – uh, probably the finest year of your career uh, in, uh, in yes. many respects. I, I wanted to ask you a bit about your time in Hawaii because uh, you talk a, a bit in the book about the difference, uh, n- not in, in, in talent, but the difference in the, the vibe of playing in A ball as opposed to double A as opposed to triple A. And, and you talk right. about how triple A is, is, is something different because uh, you've also got guys who are on the way down. And I, I know that right. uh, Clay Kirby was a guy who was on that Hawaii uh, Islanders team with you who was yep. re- really at the end of the line, uh, you know, a, a very good uh, uh, pitcher at his best uh, in, in the major leagues. Yes, he was. Uh, What's that like in terms of the? Uh, and of course, you know, you you wound up in in AAA again at the, uh, the you know very end of your career. What's it like in terms of that bittersweet aspect of uh, of the guys who are uh, trying to get back to where they once were, and in and in many cases they they won't be able to do that. Well, it, it, it's like you have you have to understand the animal, and the animal is. Uh, you've been exiled to AAA. That's that's kind of a quasi slap on the back. And you you sit there and and you think, well, am I going to be here forever, or do I get a chance to go back? Well, you have to make it happen. You have to make it happen. The only way you're going to go back is if you start pitching well. 
And if you pitch well, that eliminates any BS that can come your way. Because now you become a star, and they're saying, well, he's pitching well here, so he warrants a shot back in the big leagues. So that's what I did in Hawaii was I made it happen. I won four games uh, through a couple of shutups, had a decent ERA, struck out some people, and uh, all of a sudden the eyes started opening because I'm throwing on a, on a five-man rotation on a consistent basis. I'm starting to get in the groove. And so I threw 60-plus innings, I think, you know, there. So they were getting in the playoffs. Our team's in first place. So I go to San Jose. I got double double header in San Jose. And I throw the first game of the double header, and I throw a shutout. I throw a shutout. I'm in the I'm in the dugout, and Dick Phillips was our manager. He goes, John, there's a phone call for you in the clubhouse. You're done. You're all done. So uh, he goes, I think it's Buzzy. He wants to talk to you. I go, okay. So I pick up the phone. I talk. To, it was Buzzy. Buzzy goes, goes, uh, hey, we're calling you back up. And he goes, I want you to hop the plane. We got team pitcher. I want you here for the team pitcher. Can you get here on time? And I go, sure. So I get on the plane, PSA, my brother, thank God he was there working for PSA, got me a ticket set up, all ready to go, hopped the plane San Diego, got in the car, took me right to the stadium, ran in, threw my pants on, threw my shirt on, and didn't have pitcher. So I pitch in the game in San Jose and come back and I'm in the team pitcher in San Diego. But you know, you look and and going back and all that running around and everything, and here's poor Clay Kirby sitting there, hoping he can come too, and they just pass him up. And you see that pitcher when I was a kid at 18 and saw Kirby throw a no hitter and get pulled by Preston Gomez. You know, just seeing that and then seeing how successful. Clay was with the Cincinnati Reds organization, and to be sent to an exile position and not given a chance, and then start drinking and smoking cigarettes like there's no tomorrow, you knew it was the end of the line. And you can see players just dwindle away, and the ones that have given up on themselves, totally given up, and just said, enough is, is enough, I'm not doing this anymore. And that's what happened with Clay. I just saw him dwindle away. He was having fun. It was a great place to end your career. If you're going to play AAA ball, I don't see any better place in Hawaii to play. Yeah, as AAA destinations go, uh, you can do a lot worse. That's one of the best. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the best. Well, I, I'll tell you what. I, I'm going to leave the, the, the very terrific uh, story that you tell of the 78 season to, uh, to my followers who have to get this book. Uh, Fastball John is, is the book. I, I, I want to jump ahead just a bit and ask you about the strike year of, uh, of 81. Yes. And, of course, you yes. were a, a player rep and, and uh, involved yes. in this and working with Marvin Miller. And I, I wanted to ask you what your recollections are of the, the, uh, the, the labor situation in 81 and what Marvin Miller 
uh, meant to, to, to baseball uh, through the 1970s and obviously into the 1980s as well. Well, well, Marvin was was a key figurehead. Of, I was with Marvin from when I was a, a kid in '72 in the first strike, and then that's when uh, Dick Dietz kind of kind of got hammered there, uh, being a union rep. Uh, got exiled. Here's a guy hitting 286 as a catcher, and he's no longer playing. He's barely getting on with somebody. Well, you know they treated player reps pretty rough. The, the ownerships did, and uh, Marvin. Uh, then in '76, we had another lockout, if you remember, mm-hmm. which was technically another strike, and I was involved in that with Marvin. And uh, then in 1981 was the CBA, a complete reorganization of the collective bargaining agreement in 1981. And what the ownership was doing there was colluding uh, together to get all these players signed to multi-year contracts and take them off of the free agent market. So they were trying to eliminate the free agency system. And so a lot of us got a lot, especially Buzzy. Buzzy was uh, using uh, 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 Gene Autry's money to buy up all these players and take them off the market so he could kind of collude with the other teams and create himself a winner so that he could get the Cowboy a, uh, a pennant. Well, there was a lot of stuff going on in the back scenes that we didn't know about until I sat down with Marvin and Marvin came up to me and he says Johnny he says nobody wants to do this but someone's got to do it and I'm asking you to do it I'm going whoa this sounds pretty serious Marvin what are you talking about he goes Augie Bush has interest in six ball clubs that is called a conflict of interest I said I'm very aware of that he goes no one wants to ask him because they know if you ask him he's going to you're going to get exiled or released or something's going to happen to you and i said yeah probably but it needs to be brought out i can't ask that question because he think he'll just think i'm just trying to stir the pot mm-hmm. but if it comes from a player if it comes from a player rep then they'll know they can't avoid it and they have to answer the question and so Ray Greavy was, was a negotiator that hated Marvin. I mean, they, they were like, you think Gibson and I got into it. You should have seen Marvin and Ray Greavy get into it. It, it is like, ugh, <laughs> ugly. And so I, I pledged to Marvin that in the meeting, in our sit-down sit meeting with ownership, I would confront Gussie Bush with that question. My ex-owner I played for Okay. So we get in the meeting. We're all sitting down at the table. All the eyes are on me. I see everybody looking at me. And, you know, and I go, uh, Mr. Bush, John DeQuista, I played for you in 1977. Thank you, sir. You know, really enjoyed it. I have one question for you. I need to ask you this question. And I hope you can give me an honest answer, sir. He goes, and what's that? I said, how are you able to have ownership in six different ball clubs in Major League Baseball? Dead silence. It went dead quiet. And I looked at him. I said, he goes, where did you get that information? I said, a little birdie told me. I said, is it true? He goes, it's true. I go, hmm. 
well, that's interesting. Isn't that a conflict of interest? He goes, I don't have to answer that. And I went right then and there. I knew I'd cut my own throat. Two weeks later, I was sent to Salt Lake City when no moves were to be made. I was exiled to Salt Lake City. And I was on the big league roster. And there were supposed to be no trade moves or any send downs or anything during that period. Buzzy Bavese was so pissed off. Actually, Gussie was more pissed off than anybody. But he called up Buzzy and he says, get this guy out of here. And from that point on, I got blackballed for the rest of my career from that point on, like Dick Dietz, AAA, another AAA, get released at the end of the, the last day. I've, I've got the best ERA best performer. I pitched 17 times. I got the best ERA on the team, and I get, I'm getting released on the last day. And I'm your best pitcher. Yeah, you got screwed. And, oh, boy, did I get screwed. I got screwed big time. And I'm bouncing around. Finally, Billy Martin finally picked me up and brought me back up to the big leagues. And, you know, I had to go to Tacoma for about a week, maybe about two at the most. And, and Billy funny sees I'm not giving up any runs in six appearances and bam I'm back in the big leagues again I throw 11 times for Billy well Billy and the and the A's organization feels that hey John's our closer we got a, a, a bona fide closer so I feel I'm back in the game again who shows up Bill Rigney shows up as special assistant to Roy Eisenhart oh great super he hates Union guys, because he's tied to Feeney. They're good friends, so they're tied to baseball. So I'm going, oh my God, I'm getting, oh, I'm going to get it again. Sure enough, last day of the season, I get released. Oakland releases me, and I had the best ERA, I had the most appearances, and the most saves of any pitcher on the team in spring training. And I get released. And, and they're taking me on the tours, you know, the tours to go around and promote. Sure. They're taking me around on the tours saying I'm the closer for next year. Yeah. That doesn't add up. No, it didn't. Now, so so you're dealing with... That's what happened. You're dealing with this blowback from standing up and asking some a person in power an uncomfortable question. Essentially. Yep. Now, in 83, Billy ha has moved on. And by the way, when you said that Billy picked you up, Billy literally came and picked you up at the airport when you went to Oakland. Yes, he did. Yeah. And he gave me $2,000 in cash and said, go get some clothes. Because I came straight from Atlanta, Richmond, you know, Richmond Braves in AAA. And that's a whole other story. I asked for my release from Hank Aaron. And Hank gave it to me because Eddie Matthews runs into my brother at the airport and says, what's John doing? <laughs> simple question. Right the Got me back at the big leagues, that simple question. And I, I called Hank, and Hank said, go ahead. If they only put you in the big leagues, I will not let you go because we're going to put you in the big leagues next year. You're coming with us. And I go, okay, well, he's going to put me in the big leagues. So he goes, okay, you can have your release. Go ahead. So I fly from Richmond to San Diego. My brother picks me up there, puts me on a plane, because he's working at the airport, puts me on another plane, 
And I go up to Oakland, and there's that black cowboy hat sitting there wait, waiting for me. And he goes, this is for you. Welcome. Go take me back to the ballpark. Drop me off and go get yourself some clothes. Go get squared away and then come back to the park. And I go, okay. Well, I get I did what Billy said, went and got some clothes, and took Billy back to the park and went, went to the Hilton and got squared away and then uh, – went back to the park and he got dressed in my Oakland A's uniform, walked out, and they're taking pictures of me. I'm not even signed yet. Tops Bubblegum is taking pictures. Fleer, they're all taking pictures. And I'm going, okay, well, we can't hurt anything. We've had Miss Q cards before. <laughs> Why not? So so I go down. I go down. Arn Fowler's waiting down there. He's got two guys standing in the batter's box. And he goes, hey, buddy. He says, if you can throw between those two guys without killing him, you go, Billy, I'll probably sign you. And I go, okay. Well, I just pitched three days ago, so I was pretty much ready to go. And I got loose, and I start throwing the ball, and Art's going, my God, you've been, you've been sitting in AAA with this kind of stuff? I go, yep. He goes, you wouldn't by chance be a player rep, would you? I go, Yep. He goes, that answers my question. He goes, go, go see Billy. Go see Billy. Billy want to sign you. So I go into Billy. Billy had the contract already down here, pen, pen on the contract. He goes, sign there, Diggs. Nice to have you. It's good to have an Italian hit man on the team. And I said, you're, I said, you're very welcome, Skipper, and thanks for bringing me out of exile. He goes, I don't know how long it's going to last, but we're going to make it run well. And I said, good. And that was a, a tumultuous time for Billy, too. He was going through contract renegotiations, and they were not going very well. They, they wanted to get rid of him. <laughs> and so Billy gets fired after the season. He goes to the Yankees. George hires him again. And uh, now you got to remember, if you go back in the book, you remember what happened with George Steinbrenner and, and me yes. when I been in 81. Okay. Yes, and it and all comes full I, circle uh, in, my, in 83. That's right. Everything comes full circle. So uh, my agent decides that we're going to pull a fast one on George Steinbrenner when I'm in front page of the New York Post saying, Yankees get Diaquisto, pre-agent, you know, solidifies the bullpen for Goose Gossage, now set a man, blah, 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 right? Well, that didn't work. And we ended up going with the Angels, and uh, George was a little bit mad about that. And uh, so when I come back and get released in the 83 season, and Billy's sitting up in New York, I call Billy. I said, Billy, Billy, I'm, you know, they released me. He goes, I knew they were going to do that. Let me see what I can do with George. Well, he calls up George, and George basically said two words and hung up the phone. And we both know it was FU, and and the rest of goes on its merry way. And Billy goes, I don't know what the hell you did to George, but uh, he, he basically told me to tell you to go screw yourself. And I said, yeah, I kind of figured that was going to happen, but I thought you might have had a little more pull with him. He goes, uh, no, George runs the show. He goes, I, I got no pull. I just run the show with George. And I go, okay, that's fine. Thanks for trying, Skipper. See you later. So I sat at home for two months and waited for the phone to ring. Finally, the phone did ring. It was the White Sox. 
LaRusso is the new manager. Jerry Reinsdorf is the owner. Bobby Winkles is one of the coaches that I happened to have when I was a giant. And they sent me to Denver, Colorado, where I pitched six times. Six times. And I still, still broke the gun at, at 100. Still. Wow. To that day. What? When Winkles came to see me at the end, I hit 100 miles per hour, and I'd only thrown six times. Ricky, think about it. How, how did they not give you a longer look? Well, they they never came down till the end when they were th they got in the playoffs and their pitchers retired, and they wanted somebody who had experience and could throw. And Larusa knew knew of me because I pitched against him and his club when I was with the. But it did pretty good against them. So he kind of remembered that, and they were checking around and found out I was in Denver in the organization. And so they wanted they were they were going to take a chance and bring me back for the playoffs. That didn't happen. I, it didn't happen. You know, I, I have to ask you. Uh, you know, in, in the late 80s, we, we had this, this Senior Professional Baseball Association. And uh, I believe it was Greg Nettles that uh, said to you, hey, this thing is happening. How do you feel about coming back and playing ball? Because I believe it was a league for players 35 and older with you can be a little younger and be a catcher. But... Uh, you you went down to Florida and you did that for a year. How how was that? Uh, that was a lot of fun, a whole lot of fun. Uh, I actually did pretty good. I was five and four with four saves, so I was like nine and four. And you know, I actually was throwing the ball in ninety five, ninety six, and then uh, I went to Port St. Lucie and Greg Greg signed me. I got drafted. And who's over there? Bobby Bonds, Vida Blue, all my old teammates are there, Steve Onaveros, they're all there. So Ani and I go down to Florida, and we're having fun. But then, right before the season started, they ended up trading Greg Nettles and myself over to the Bradenton Explorers, which was more Yankees. But the Yankees were running it. It was Cleet Boyer, Tony Cloninger, you know, uh, all, I mean, Gee, man, at Christmas, this was even better. Greg, Greg and I went over there, and he made me a, a, a setup man closer and a spot starter. Just what I was doing with uh, the 78 uh, Padres, and, uh, which was one of my best, best years. I was 4-3 and three with 10 saves, and I was a perfecto. I did not blow a save. When I had an, and they weren't one inning or one third; they were three and four inning saves. No, okay? no, no cheapies. So, yeah, no, no cheats. And and uh, you know, so after that, I did, I did really well. We got in the playoffs. Our team, our team went in the playoffs, and and strictly because of Rick Lysander, myself, and Danny Boone, we were pitching our buns off, and so we all got signed back into baseball. Uh, Rick went with Toronto, Boone went with Baltimore, and, and Roger Craig called me up and had me sign a contract for four days, but, you know, uh, then I retired, but he brought me back, and he was going to send me to AAA. We all went to AAA. Uh, Booney got to pitch a little bit in the big leagues, and so did Rick, but, uh, you know, I, 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 
was there, they, they went and got Mark Thurman. And once they got Mark Thurman, Rogers said, well, we got Mark Thurman. We want you to go down to AAA and just go down there and pitch and be ready. And we'll bring you back if Thurman doesn't work out. And if Roger says that, I'd believe it. But at the time, my wife just had a baby. And, you know, I, I didn't want to put her through it because I know what being on the road's all about. It wouldn't have been fun in San Francisco because... Uh, uh, the old old friends would come out of the woodwork. And, you know, it's like it's not fair to her, so I just retired. And uh, I guess appropriately that, that you were able to retire from the Giants organization. Yeah, it was apropos. Yeah. You, you, were, born, you were born there and retire there. You know, there's no record of me pitching because I didn't pitch, but I was there for four days. And, you know, it's like you sit there and you go, you know, could I, I was 39 years old, Ricky. What, what am I going to do? I, kinda, I, I could probably pitch pretty good, okay? But being 39 years old, you know, you kind of got to make that decision whether or not that's the right decision to do again at 39, you know, or possibly be a pitching coach someplace, maybe. Right. I don't know. But you, you don't know. You don't know. No one's got a crystal ball. You've got to kind of roll with it, baby. Ooh, there's another song. <laughs> We're only scratching the surface. So you've got to pick up this book. Uh, I, I give it uh, my enthusiastic uh, two thumbs up. And John, where can people uh, grab this and dive in and, and uh, immerse themselves uh, not only in baseball but in 1970s culture? Oh, definitely. It's, uh, it's out on AmazonBooks.com or Amazon.com in all departments. If you type in Fastball John, uh, it'll come up in the Kindle version and in the paperback version. But don't let that paperback fool you. It's a six-by-nine paperback, so it's a very large uh, large book. And uh, if you want a signed version, uh, just uh, send me a message on my Facebook site at Fastball John. And uh, send me your information, and send me, I'll send you the information where you can send the book, and I'll even sign it for you and personalize it. So Amazon.com under Fastball John, and you'll find the book with no problem. Those of you that, that uh, follow Super 70 Sports, uh, you're fans of not only uh, baseball, but you're fans of, of that era. And I can tell you that uh, John has really brought forth not only terrific inside baseball stories, and, and the baseball aspects of this book run very deep, but also uh, bringing back that, that time period and, and the essence of that time period. And uh, I just have to uh, you know, give you all the credit in the world, and, and, and David Jordan, of course, as well, has, has done a terrific job uh, 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 collaborating with you on this. And I wish you all the success in the world, my friend. Thank you very much, Ricky, and, and once again, my friend, thank you for having me on the show, and and my my regards from my co-author, David, to you also for doing so. Thank you. All right, my pleasure. You take care. All right, my brother. Talk to you soon. Big thanks to John DiAquisto. Some of those stories are just priceless, uh, and I have to tell you, we really only scratched the surface of what you're going to find in Fastball John. Uh, Co-written with the very talented David Jordan, it really is one of the best baseball books that's come down the line in a very long while. My guest next time is going to tell you what it's like to be a member of the Texas Rangers. You're flying to Minnesota, peacefully above the clouds, when 
the flight attendants suddenly come along and start gathering up your belts, your jewelry, your shoes, and putting them into bags. I don't think that that's a good sign. That is not a good thing. The hydraulics on the airplane went out and the Texas Rangers suddenly found themselves 35,000 feet above America thinking that they're going to die. My guest next time is two-time Major League All-Star Larry Parrish and he's going to tell the harrowing story of the flight that the Texas Rangers almost didn't survive. So join me next time on the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb. I'll see you then.